Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Howard Marks has a new book out called Mastering the Market Cycle. And he just recorded a podcast with Barry Ritholtz, which will be out this weekend. But that's not what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the podcast that he did with with Tim Ferriss. And uh, Ben, there were some things in here that he said that that caught your eye. Well, it was kind of more the entire message. So I've been reading Marx for a long time. I thought the most important thing was excellent. I think it's probably one of the, the better investing books I, I've read. And I think his philosophy is great. He's We've talked before how he's one of the master communicators in the investing field. But let me posit this question to you, and maybe I'm off base here, but is it possible that people like Marx have actually done more harm than good for the invested community? Wow, hot take. A little bit of a hot take. He's He is so good at like using aphorisms and one-liners, and his writing style is great and accessible. He's a great communicator. Is it possible that he does something that 0.001% of investors can do. And the fact that he makes it sound so easy is actually a detriment to investors. And people like him and Buffett have actually made investors think it's so easy to just be a contrarian. And they've actually done more harm than good in terms of making people think that they can mirror what they do. Okay. I understand what you're saying, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my answer to that is going to be no. And here's why. I think his one-liners and his, you know, interesting ways of looking at the market are not really tangible pieces of advice. Whereas, like Jesse Livermore, perhaps quoting him, has made it seem has made trading seem way easier than it actually is. But as an example of one thing that I has really influenced me from Marx is his idea of second-level thinking, which I think that he probably got that from John Maynard Keynes with the beauty picking contest thing. So that was like a really interesting way to break down markets. But no, I think my answer is no. I, I don't think that anybody is looking at Howard Marks and saying he's he makes it look so easy. But I will agree, and I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, that a lot of what he writes about is is sort of fluffy, not tangible stuff. But that's fine. I mean, not you know, most things should not be actionable. I did like from this podcast how he said that his line, we cannot predict, but we can prepare. He said he stole that from a Northwest Mutual ad in the nineties. Oh my god. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. But the I think the idea here is that like you can be a just be a contrarian and wait for the fat pitch and get a margin of safety. That sounds so easy to do, but is so much harder to do in reality when you actually have to crunch the numbers and, and figure it out. And plus the idea that he is a distressed bond investor and not really in the stock market. So I think that maybe that gives him some space from the retail investor as well, I guess. But I think sometimes when they're these guys are such so good at communicating their ideas and drilling down into the main topics that I think it could be misconstrued by investors as it's much easier than it really is when those one-liners are hard to turn into an actual investable strategy. Yeah. I guess I would say that Marx never really gets into different asset classes. He just talks generally. And if we want to take a shot from the cheap seats, then allow, allow me to take my shot. He's been saying for the last few years to move forward with caution. I don't even know what that means. 
I know what he's trying to say, but... He said we're in the eighth inning on the Ferris podcast. Did he? So... He said, yeah, he asked him where we are, and he said, we're in the eighth you, inning. You know what bothered me about that podcast? He wouldn't tell us what he does for breakfast. Like, what are his secrets? He just wouldn't tell us. <laughs> right. If I could only get his morning routine, then I could invest like him. But I think the the best thing Marx has done for me in terms of understanding the markets is talking about the reliability of cycles and how everything is cyclical. And he spends a lot of time talking about sentiment and market psychology. And even though that stuff is very hard to you know to quantitatively figure out, I think that's kind of the right way to look at the markets and thinking about everything. Everything is cyclical, and I think if you can understand those those things, that nothing grows to the sky, and just because a crappy asset is is trading at a low price doesn't mean that it can't give a high return. That sort of thing. Uh, one thing that I really enjoyed about this conversation was Tim Ferriss asked because Marx was saying about one of you know the most important thing is to not be unemotional because that's not possible, but to be less emotional. And Ferris asks whether that can be taught or if it's something that you're born with. And Marx compared it to basketball, the the old saying, you can't coach height. And I think I tend to agree with him. I think that, and we spoke about this last week, that a lot of the analysis that people do is so biased by just their personality and whether they view the world as a keg half fall type of thing or whatever. So I don't know if that thing sort of can be coached. I think a lot of it is just who you are. Yeah. And I, I think he he rightly kind of downplayed that. Like Ferris was asking, what can we learn from you and how can we become more like you? And he said, it, it's just sometimes you're just born of it. It's not going to happen, unfortunately. So there's another good podcast this week. I, I loved this one with Rick Ferry and Jack Bogle. And it's like every time you listen to a read a book or listen to an interview with Bogle, you kind of know exactly what he was going to say, but he still I think he still finds ways to make it interesting. And he's what, 89, 90 years old or something like that? He's still he still got it, right? He still has the voice and the memory. Yeah, he's got like the ninety five mile an hour fastball every once in a while still. But some of the some of the stuff he talked about here, he he kind of went through his history. It's kind of astounding that he's still around. Like this was a crazy kind of weird what if and it's kind of dark but he said he had his first heart attack at age 30 yeah i think he's on like his fourth heart like how different would the world be if jack bogle didn't make it past age 30 that's kind of maybe sick to think about but the the stuff that he's done is, is pretty amazing so the my favorite thing i found in here was that he talked about how the first index fund in the s&p 500 for vanguard because it didn't raise that much money what was it 11 million dollars i think yeah he said they couldn't necessarily buy all 500 stocks in the S&P because it, it just wouldn't make sense from a scalability perspective. So they bought 275 stocks and just tried to kind of make the index as good as they could do by industry. And the first ever index fund was actually run by a woman who did it as her part-time job because her full-time job was in the family furniture business, which is kind of one of those things that like you can't even make up. So it was just such a sort of a ragtag start, it sounds like. And that kind of blew me away. So one, yeah, that was an amazing story. And the whole episode is great. Bogle said that in 1990, less than 10% of Vanguard's assets were index funds. And today that's 75%. And Ferry asked at one point, do you remember what the numbers were when you retired? And he just rattled it off. He's like, yes, I do. It was whatever it was. And I just thought he is just a steel trap of facts. The one thing that did surprise me is that they've kind of, it sounds like they've kept him at a distance. He does. He said he doesn't, he's not privy to some of the information that he was when he ran the firm. And he said they kind of go about running the firm without me. And it seems like they've kind of kept him at an arm's length in some ways, which is kind of interesting considering he's the guy who started the, the firm. And he said he sounded okay with it, but I was that just kind of shocked me a little bit. How about the part where he was talking about how he created growth and value index funds and he assumed that they would generate similar returns. And sure enough, 
uh, over the previous 25 years that these things have been around. They have generated pretty much identical returns, obviously a different path. But he said that he created them more as a financial planning tool, whereas I believe I believe he went with the fact that it was growth for earlier in life where you weren't going to be paying taxes on dividends and then value later in life. And he yes. said, of course, investors totally misuse them. And I forget what the, what the behavior gap was, two percentage points in growth and four in value, or, or maybe I have that reversed. But I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if I ever heard it put that way before. And he said they're by far the biggest factor funds available on the markets, which is, which is kind of surprising. Wouldn't figure Vanguard for that. But yeah, this is definitely worth a listen. And Ferry has a, po- a podcast called The Bogleheads, which is worth listening to. So someone called the top this week at the Wall Street Journal. So the headline is, Blockbuster deals and stock market records are signs of a top. And the, the lead here was great. We're definitely not trying to call a market top here, but it's hard not to. Yeah. I mean, I get it. There are, <laughs> there are signs all over the place. By the way, I wish I could take a screenshot of your face right now. You have a great smile on. I, I, I just because this, I feel like this same article could have been written twenty five times over the last six years, and talks about how there's huge mergers and acquisitions going on. And this is one of my favorite all time financial media lines, and it says there may be trouble lurking below the surface of the market. Which is that is technical? A, That's a little technical. Yes, but it's just talking about the fact that deals are. Deals are being made that seem rich and valuations are rich and there's a Tina market. And so stocks, it's definitely a top. And I don't know. Could we'll you see. explain what Tina means for people that oh, don't Oh, sorry. Know? There is no alternative. So because interest rates have been so low, people thought that the only place to invest was the stock market, which doesn't really hold water when, when you look at the fund flows and everything is flowing into bonds. But I think that's more of a market structure thing than anything. But one of these articles is going to be right, and they're going to sound like a genius because they're timing. But these types of anecdotes aren't going to be the thing that's going to call it for you. So I read this article after reading the one I'm about to, we're about to talk about, a Bloomberg article. So we've spoken about SoftBank, and it's in the news all the time. But I don't think I ever really knew much about it. So I had no idea that SoftBank was started as a distributor of PC software. I literally thought it was just like a bank. It's financial. Yeah, I guess you could have talked me into that too. I didn't. I didn't really know either. So, in 1995, this guy wrote a two million dollar check in his first meeting with Yahoo, and that's sort of his deal. He is certainly a gunslinger. He just writes huge checks all over the place. And after reading this article and then reading that Wall Street Journal headline about the the market top, I think I sort of get it. Let's see. So the the Vision Fund. I thought this was interesting. It's now run by nine managing partners, five in Silicon Valley, two in Japan, two in London. And he says that he plans to increase the number of dealmakers to 300 over the next five years. Well, it says he's going to raise a new $100 billion fund every two or three years. And I think a lot of the first one, it sounds like, came from sovereign wealth funds. And they, they want to spend $50 billion a year, which they, they show in here for perspective. In 2016, the entire US venture capital industry invested a little over $75 billion. So every year, he wants to invest two-thirds of the, the current venture market on an annual basis. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, a, of an equivalent analogy. Well, so, I don't have so anything. I'm, but I was trying to think of the market implications of this. And honestly, I don't think it really impacts the VC world all that much because most of the VC world deals in really tiny, small deals. And they can't really move the needle with those. So I think if anything, if this, if this thing goes on to be successful or if it just continues, it's just going to push out going public for a lot of the bigger companies because they talked about how they put money into Uber and Slack and some of these other more well-established private companies. But if you're a small venture capital firm, 
I don't know why this should really impact you that much unless they're just driving up the prices and, and uh, multiples on everything else. Well, aren't they going to run out of companies? They're going to have to eventually just put money into big tech firms and maybe do some acquisitions. And so some of those companies that maybe would go public, maybe they'll st- stay private longer because they have this liquidity from something like this. So it's possible that it could alter the structure of the market. I'm just not sure if you can, at that size, even call it venture capital investing anymore. Well, it's certainly not early stage venture, that's for sure. There was a, well, I guess they are probably changing the landscape, uh, certainly for, for founders. Here's a quote from the article. In 2015, online lending startup Social Finance was looking to raise a few hundred million dollars, but Sun wanted to invest more. According to SoFi co-founder Mike Cagney, Sun told him that he was going to invest $1 billion in online lending. Whether that capital went to SoFi or its competitors was up to Cagney. The entrepreneur opted to take the deal. Right. No one's going to say no to that, obviously. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you read in here and you're like, all right, if this is the top, this is a pretty poetic article to market. Yeah. And I I guess it will be interesting to see if the investors continue to come depending on what the results are. Because a lot of times in venture capital, you don't know for 10, 12, 15 years how good your returns actually are. So it depends how how shaky things get in these markets and if investors will actually pony up the capital for these $100 billion funds every few years. Wealthmanagement.com did an article, Bernstein, Swenson, Brown, or Swedro, how the financial guru's signature portfolios have fared for individual investors and which are best suited going forward. So they took a look at some model portfolios and you know what was I'm not sure why did they start in 2005? I'm not sure it could have been that that's when the asset classes were available to run it but yeah they they took a look at all these different asset allocation portfolios and the interesting thing to me and we'll share this data in the show notes and so they they did four of these portfolios and they've these have been written about in books or uh white papers and then they compared it to a 60/40 and the annualized returns and annualized volatility for all these portfolios was fairly similar, even though the asset allocations were far off. And so I think the big takeaway for me is that any sort of long-term asset allocation and mix between stocks and bonds or hard assets or whatever, if you hold it and rebalance it, it's probably going to do fairly similar over the long term. So the biggest hurdle in most cases is just picking an allocation and sticking with it. Yeah. I mean, I cannot agree more. I think so like for instance, I'm just going to read off the average annualized return for for so a 60/40 over this time was 7.4%. And Swenson was 7.5, Swedro was 6.5, Bernstein was 7.25 and Harry Brown was 6.8. So they all get to around the same place. It's just a matter of finding what works for you. So the permanent portfolio for instance um is probably going to look the most different in terms of the path of returns it takes. And that is suited for a very specific type of personality who is very comfortable going against the grain and away from the herd. And that's not for everybody. Um, but I guess probably another thing that stands out is, is looking at the permanent portfolio. The maximum drawdown was by far, by far the most attractive in this model. It was a max drawdown of just 12.6%. Right. Because a lot of the money is in bonds and cash, which some of the other ones aren't. I actually thought the the most interesting thing about this article was the fact that they called William Bernstein a guru because one of my favorite quotes of his is he said, the reason that guru is such a popular word is because charlatan is so hard to spell. I love that one. Great point. So I didn't realize um, that the permanent portfolio was actually a mutual fund. And it's got, yeah. I think, 2 or $3 billion in assets in it. And you showed this to me. So the actual 
permanent portfolio, which I think you and I have probably both written about, is the U.S. stock market, U.S. long bonds, gold, and cash, each in 25% increments. But the actual permanent portfolio mutual fund you found is not like that at all. Yeah. So I was sort of surprised. It's 20% gold, 5% silver, and that's not that big of a deal. But 10% is in Swiss franc assets. Um and I forget exactly what that represents, but 15% is in real estate and natural resource stocks. Another 15% is in aggressive growth stocks. And then 35% is in dollar assets, which I guess are a mix of bonds. So it's not quite what I thought it was. And the traditional permanent portfolio, the, the 25, 25, 25, 25, I think that makes sense. Like I can get behind that because you have four things that are going to act very differently from one another and all ostensibly, maybe with the exception of gold, that have positive expected returns. Um, I just think that even though it makes a lot of sense, again, I just think it takes a very specific personality type to invest in that and really stick with it for 30 years. Yes. And to rebalance into the pain because you know that there's almost always going to be pain somewhere, which I suppose is, is likely for a lot of these things. But but you know, Meb spoke about this before we move off real quick. Meb Faber once, I think, did a similar piece. And he said, it's basically like when you're making chocolate chip cookies. And you have the ingredients and some people are going to use more flour and some people are going to use more sugar and some people are going to use less chocolate chips. But at the end of the day, you're baking chocolate chip cookies. And that's sort of how I think about asset allocation, uh, which is going to be the best. Who the hell knows? Um, and, and does it even really matter? Uh, you're not going to know ahead of time. So just pick something that is sensible that you think you have at least a decent chance of sticking with. And while we're sticking with analogies here, I'm trying to one-up Marks. And the other one I heard was... Asset allocation is like a bar of soap. The more you touch it and play with it, the smaller it gets. So that's from I don't. I, I heard that. that. I've heard that. Pref- I've heard that before. It's I didn't hear about it related to asset allocation, but relating to investing. And I think it was a chief strategist at Merrill Lynch, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into our survey, we had to read an email from some listeners about this, our survey work, since we are an anti-survey podcast. And so this listener email said, "My wife and I both love your podcast. We just binge listened to the last few episodes during a long country drive." cross-country drive. However, we are dismayed by your repeated references to being an anti-survey podcast. While we appreciate the general jovial nature of this reference, we heard you make the same comment more than once and are concerned that you may be perpetuating a harmful falsehood. And we definitely don't want to do that. So they said specifically, we've made comparisons between the size of a sample and the size of a total population. They say, you know, trying to take 2000 people out of 30 million is basically how statistical sampling works. So in truth, the marginal gains in accuracy by increasing the size of a sample are surprisingly small after the sample reaches a certain size. And they kind of go on to say, the only way you can really get 100% confidence is if you did a complete census, and even that will never get you the whole way there. So we need to defend our honor of being an anti-survey podcast here. What say you? Gosh darn right we do. Well, (laughs) my biggest thing is we've looked at so many of these, and so many of them come to such different conclusions when talking about asset allocation or retirement savings or who owns Bitcoin in the you mean, article... You mean, one, one sur- you mean one survey can contradict another? Yeah. And they, we've looked at so many of these that so many of them do contradict one another. And then the articles will say 30% of Americans instead of saying 30% of people from this survey. So it's kind of misleading in a lot of ways. And I think when you've looked at enough of them from a financial perspective like us, especially when we talk about things like sentiment... A lot of times when you're talking about money, people lie. And it's more important to look at what people do, not what they say. Because a lot of times so people exact, will just make stuff up. That's exactly right. I, the reason why I'm anti-survey, and I feel like we've, we've gone over this a million times, is because people 
answer oftentimes the way that they think they're supposed to answer. So that's one. But even if they are being truthful, or at least they think they're being truthful, if they're asking about, if they're answering a question about, are you more likely to take out a mortgage or are you more more or less likely to buy stocks or whatever it is, they're going to answer based on where mortgage rates have gone or are coming from and and same thing with stocks. So they're going to like, are you bullish or bearish? Well, what did stocks do the last six months? Right. Price drives the narrative. Maybe that's a bad example. Maybe that's a bad example. But I I also do think that asking 2,000 people that visit a certain site is like a very self-selecting sample. So I I just, I will stand by the fact that 2,000 people concentrated in one area is not it does not do yes, and in, uh, and in some cases there's there's no there's nothing else to go on beyond that, and so you have to go with what you have. But I don't think you can take that small sample size and say it counts as all Americans because that I just all right. So, so you know what? Let's let's look at a let's look at a survey. So in J.P. Morgan's Guide to the Markets, they surveyed people. The survey was conducted January 6, twenty seventeen, through January thirteenth, twenty seventeen. Through online interviews, so right there, it's people that are likely to be online. Sixteen hundred seventy-one individuals, ages twenty-five or older. All right, that's all I got. I, I, I felt like I was about to <laughs> to drop the mic, but that was it. <laughs> all, right. all right, anyway, <laughs> anyway, the, the nature of this, yeah, Roasted. the nature of the survey, <laughs> the nature of the survey is this. So, they asked people. Do you think that you will need five hundred thousand dollars or more for retirement? And sixty-four percent of people said yes. Now, which leads to the other question: What are the other thirty-six percent of people saying that they don't need the five hundred thousand or that they need more? I, maybe. So that's another thing that was omitted. So in this particular survey, there's not enough details. Maybe that thirty-six percent is actually being truthful with themselves and realizing they're never going to get there. Ah. Uh, yeah, you need to dig, dig deeper. So it shows the median value of retirement account by age of household. And not a lot of people have, like basically nobody, the median, no no median is over $500,000. Not even and close. Yet six, yeah, and yet this, 64% of people think they need more. So I guess this is just trying to show the retirement savings gap. Yeah, this shows the median retirement savings for people 65 to 74 is 126000 So it's just a very small percentage that actually gets there. So people saying they need it, even when it's never going to happen, there's a disconnect You there. know what? We bungled this, and I think maybe the maybe the the emailers have a point. <laughs> Anything is possible. I do agree. Like statistical sampling, like there's nothing that's ever going to be perfect, and I think that's that's our point. It's just that it's never going to be perfect. And moving along. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the fraud of the week. And I say fraud of the week because I feel like it. I really do feel like it's becoming a weekly occurrence where you're seeing these these SEC lawsuits. So I want to. Do you have, I, a, Go- I don't know do you have a Google tweeted. Alert set up for this or what? No, no. But people tweeted whether it's I don't know who. I, honestly, I don't know where these come from. They come True. from Twitter. So let me just read one of the complaints. Merrill, and this is by the way, this is just a classic Ponzi fund. This guy Merrill misappropriated at least forty-five million dollars, including by transferring over seven million dollars to his personal bank accounts. So he's getting investments and just going straight into his bank account, spending $10 million and at least 25 high-end automobiles, $5.5 million toward the purchase of a house in Naples, Florida, over $2 million for home renovations, $500,000 for an interest in a Gulfstream 200 private jet, a $100,000 club membership in Naples, three hundred fifty grand on a boat, and transferring approximately $1 million to casinos. So I guess when you're investing with these people, you don't always see what their lifestyle is like, but holy shit, isn't this a giant red flag when you see people that you're investing with living this kind of lifestyle? 
I see it says like 52 million of the 345 was by family offices who usually consider themselves to be fairly sophisticated, sophisticated. as investors. Yeah. You wonder what kind of due diligence is done here. So this guy wasn't from Merrill Lynch. His name was just Merrill. His name was Merrill. Well, speaking of due diligence, so this this is what the investors were promised. And I, I don't know what they were buying. It was it was some sort of loan portfolio or something or the other. So in, it was different in each case, but the documentation typically stated that investors would receive a fixed return ranging from 12 to 15% and split the remaining profits with, with Merrill and Ledford entities. And then it goes on to say later, a presentation advertised that, that the investors would get 100% of net collections up to 25% of the principal investments, and then profits over 25% split 50-50, up to 40%, and profits over 40% would be split 80-20. I mean, it's just like when, when the tenure is at 2% and you're being promised guaranteed returns of 12 to 50% and up to 40% and blah, blah, blah. I mean, holy shit, like... <laughs> Yeah, I love how they use put that. Some common, use some common sense. 41% or over. I love how they put that in as like a teaser. Like, oh man, if we get up to that high. Like the number one rule with this stuff is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And people just can't wrap their heads around that. Well, here's the the awful thing about how Ponzi schemes work is that they talked about a few different investors in the fund and the typical experiences that they had. And investor A gave you know half a million dollars and then he got $100,000 back over the next six months. And then, of course, he gave more money. And he did that like four or five or six times. And I don't really know how you protect yourself against this other than to just be weary of something that looks too good to be true. But like I said, if you are getting payouts, right, then everything seems to be copacetic. Yeah, as long as you're higher up the pyramid than other people, I suppose. You got me. Yeah. So we go through the JP Morgan Guide to Markets. And there's there's always a few interesting new slides, and uh, I don't know this one is particularly new, but but this certainly stood out to me. There was a chart showing S and P 500 profit margins, and I think Grantham has called this the most mean reverting series in finance. And we'll look at this in the show notes, and it has just not mean reverted at all. Right now, it's at 11.5 percent. And it's just been making new highs and new highs. And this is kind of incredible. Right. If you did technical analysis on this, you'd say the trend is going higher from the 1992 start, right? Not only is the trend going higher, I see no signs of resistance. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that's hard to believe. And I, I, I agree with his, in theory, what he's saying that the basics of capitalism say that profit margins shouldn't be high forever because new entrants should come in and competition should drive them down. But uh, we've talked a lot about the structure of the market changing and how cheap everything is. And I think the internet has really changed this in a lot of ways. And who knows? Maybe there's just a, a higher level of these than the historical averages show. I guess this this chart also can make the point that the companies have gotten so giant, there there is no room for competition. So nobody is competing with Apple. Nobody's competing with Facebook or Google. And I mean, I guess maybe they're all competing with each other. But no smaller companies are coming in to, to do anything about what they're well, what or their margins are, or they're buying up those companies before they can compete. But yeah, I, I think that's not to say profit margins will remain elevated forever. But I think that maybe it's a there's a new average people need to look at. So Nick at FP tweeted a chart from UBS on market concentration, and of course we've spoken ad nauseum about concentration, especially in market cap weighted index funds, being a feature, not a bug. So UBS did some work and they came to the conclusion that this is not abnormal. And I'll just read a quote from from the piece. The top five contributors of the last 12 months were Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Berkshire Hathaway and Google. 
An investor who invested in this portfolio a year ago would have gained 50%. An investor who had bought the S&P 500 portfolio X of these names would have gained 14%. So the current performance gap is 36%. This level of outperformance is broadly in line with history. Right. So if you know how the markets function, those scary headlines about concentration shouldn't be all that scary. Yeah, this is good. We'll post this in the show notes. Listener questions. So I know I shouldn't be I shouldn't expect home prices to crater like they did after 2008, but I'm wondering if there's any reasonable expectation that home prices will eventually level off or drop enough to make a buying opportunity. I just want to buy the dip, which I don't think I've ever heard buy the dip in real estate before, but what do you well, think? Well, I have good news for this person. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that home price gains have slowed for the fourth straight month in July. So there you go. Buy the dip. I think um, it's it's tough to do, and especially since like what happened in the mid two thousand, mid to late two thousands was totally in, in entire over the entire country, and that is fairly rare. And so a lot of this is typically regional and has to do with where you're at or your neighborhood or your local economy. And so it's so hard to predict those things, like when they will drop or level out. And it's hard, especially if you're actually selling another house. It's it's hard to find a deal and buy the dip because you're 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 selling higher to buy higher. So in a lot of ways, it's not like you're going to be able to make any hay there. So I think trying to time the real estate market is really tough. Well, so the good news is that home price appreciation is slowing, but the bad news is that the U.S. average thirty-year mortgage rate just hit 4.97%, the highest since April 2011. So yeah, I mean, I agree with you, of course. It, it, it is impossible to time the housing market. You're not... I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to continue to rent because you're waiting for a pullback? What if that's four years? I mean, at some point, you just have to move on with your life. And I mean, I feel this guy's pain because I am looking for homes on Long Island and it seems like they're just all way higher than they probably should be. And most people don't I don't view buying a home the same as buying another asset because there's so many other factors involved in that decision. I think it's more of a family, personal, emotional decision than anything. So it's hard to... And if you end up waiting for five years and the real estate market doesn't come down, then you're you're going to be kicking yourself. So it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. All right. One of your listener questions this week was a recommendation on how to allocate funds for needs in three, five, seven years. Can you elaborate how you think about allocating short-term needs in comparison to allocating to an emergency fund. My initial thought is nothing would change, but just to keep it in cash, am I thinking about this the wrong way? I think a lot of this, I wrote about this recently, a lot of what people assume is an emergency is really just a, a expense that is non-periodic. So you just it's not going to happen every single month, but you know it's going to happen. So things like car repairs, every year you're going to have to pay your annual insurance premium for your house or your car. And so for a lot of those things, I think you just have to kind of build those into your budget and understand that those payments are going to have to come. And so it's not an emergency. It's just a way of life, basically. So answer the question. Yeah, I, th- I think you still, for those, I, I think you still have to be fairly safe with those if, in terms of investing because those are shorter term than even the stuff we were talking about last week. But I think that you, again, I think the right line of thinking is to sort of space those out and, and understand that they're going to have to be part of your budget, whether they happen on a monthly basis or not. So yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Don't have much to add there. Let's move on to to some recommendations. But before we get there, I want to bring some things up that... So I use Slack as a place to store messages and drop links for later. 
And last night, by accident, I slacked them to you. <laughs> yeah, it was that. It was a crit. So I was like, whoops. So you told me, when we were, we were in Chicago last week, you told me that you played football. You played two high school games at the Silverdome. Yes. Have you never have you never told me that? I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess we never talked that far back. It feels like a long time ago, but no, that was when I was in high school. They played the state championship games in the Silverdome, which I think doesn't even exist anymore. So we we played there twice. Wait, so you were on the high school state championship team? Yes. Did you win? Not to brag. We lost one and one one. <laughs> wait, so did you wait, did you play or were you a, were you a starter or a bench? Yeah, no, I played. We I was a small high school, so everyone played both ways, basically. Oh, yeah, you're being I, very I, shy. You're being very are, shy about These this. are the things that come out over beers in Chicago, I guess. Yes. No, I, All right, yeah, fine. I, well, I, if I can make you even more shy, I was also told, and I didn't hear this, that you won most fashionable in your <laughs> as your high school superlative. I believe the, tr- the, the actual award was uh, Mr. GQ, but again, not to brag. <laughs> well, you look lovely today. Oh, thank you. Uh, again, these the, are the things the that come out. The listener can't say this, but you've got this green and blue plaid on. It's really to die for. All right. Thanks for thanks for building me up. You really know how to make a guy feel good about himself. All right. All right. Wh- what do you got? We talk a lot about expectations driving how you feel about a movie. And I went in with supremely low expectations. My wife and I rented Tag this weekend, which with John Hamm, Jake Johnson, Jeremy Renner. We heard about that one. Yes. Thinking it was... I mean, the, the plot sounded dumb. It was a story about these guys who have been playing a game of Tag for 25, 30 years. Supposedly, it's based on a true story and they made a movie out of it, which was a little more over the top than the real story. So I thought it'd be, eh, let's see how it is. It actually wasn't that bad. I want to say it was actually kind of good and funny. Like they didn't take themselves too, too seriously. And I think I actually kind of liked it going in with really low expectations. Okay, that's good. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Before you move on, how many people were in your high school? My, I think my graduating class was 65 people, 350 oh, wow. people total. Yeah, really small. All right. That explains it. All right. Yes. Get back. It's, sorry. So you just had to <laughs> take me down a peg before <laughs> after... Talking me up. Okay. Uh, then this week I, I was reading the Steve Martin book, Born Standing Up. It was it was his autobiography. I loved it. He was he's a very good writer, way better than I thought. He talked about his jokes and how he sort of came up in the stand up world and how it wasn't it was anything certain. He he almost quit the industry at age thirty. And I thought this was a great book. And it was about two hundred pages for an autobiography, which I think is great. Like the bi- biographies oh, you read perfect. that are like five or six hundred pages. This one was the perfect length, and his writing style was amazing, and it was one of the better books I've read in a while. That's all right, all what's this Pivot, I say? Oh, Pivot is the new podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, and it's just them talking about tech. It's like a 20, 25-minute podcast. Uh, I think it's going to be good, and I, those are two of the, my go-to people in tech and the, in the media to understand what's going on. So I have two D recommendations. Speaking of expectations, I had low expectations, but it fell even short of those low expectations. So The Mummy with your boy TC, I heard it was awful, but I just had to see for myself. I watched the first 20 minutes and holy moly, was that bad. Yeah, I turned it off. It was on HBO a few months ago. I turned it off half hour in. Yeah, I have a high tolerance for crap, but that was really bad. And on the plane home from Chicago, I watched Rampage. And uh, you know, I knew what I was getting myself into. Monsters, The Rock... It was. It really was pretty bad. Yeah, he's he's got to change it up and do like a serious movie or something. His beyond action and comedy, his movies have kind of fallen flat lately. Yeah, pretty bad. So uh, Steven Johnson has a new book out, which I have not read, but I did read this week. I read a book from 2010 called "Where Good Ideas Come From," 
You ever read that one? Yeah, it wasn't nearly as good as, as his other one, I thought. I totally agree. I thought that there was... I mean, there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but you sort of had to work for it. What was his book that we really love? I've got it right on my bookshelf and I can't find it right now, but it was about the six six biggest innovations. How we got to now? Yes, how we got to now, which is an yeah, amazing, that book was amazing book. Yes, I loved it. But this, yeah, that one wasn't nearly as good, and it was kind of a, along similar lines, but not as good. So I'm looking forward to his new one. If it's not good, he's he's dead to me forever. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, writing off writers is probably a good place to leave it. What do you think? Okay, sounds good. Send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next week.